So welcome to You Talking with Greg. I am back with my most oft-repeated guest, simply because we have some of the most scintillating conversations in the history of discourse. As our first one was, it is, of course, the incomparable Layman Pascal, who's here to share with us some of his latest reflections. Layman, welcome, friend. Hi, man. Good to see you. Happy to be incomparable. <laughs> uh, you know, my favorite kinds of discussions are where I have a sense of something, but I haven't had a chance to explore it yet. Okay. And I right. have a sense of something unexplored, which is um, an overlap between certain elements of science and certain elements of spirituality. It seems yes. to me that there's an emerging consensus from different scientific disciplines, from evolutionary theories, from information theories about the centrality of prediction mm -hmm. as the driver of adaptive intelligence in systems, including systems like human cognition. Yep. And that sort of situates error correction relative to prediction or the response to mismatch as the heart of the ongoing creative relationship between inner and outer worlds. Lovely. Uh, also, self-awareness, wisdom, even the catalyzing of peak experiences could be construed around the notion of response to mismatch, as Jill mm. Nephew has been at pains to sort of point out to people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that presents an interesting situation for spirituality, because spirituality is populated on the one hand by practices that foreground struggle and the response to discrepancy, but also by practices and propositions concerning the rejection of discrepancy as, as a failed approach to reality. So hmm. all of that is very intriguing. And uh, I feel like no one's really explored these conjunctions yet. Lovely. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah. So let's get uh, people get situated here. Uh, so obviously, if you've been paying much attention uh, to the neuroscience literature, cognitive neuroscience literature, we know about predictive processing and Carl Friston's work in relationship to Basically, the reduction of surprise, the matching of a template, what that does is afford, at least from a functional perspective, the animal to anticipate, model, uh, gain then control so that it can move towards the things that it wants, move away from the things that it wants by the reduction of surprise. That's a snapshot. John likes to call it anticipation rather than prediction. That actually goes back to some of what uh, Helmholtz was talking about in terms of he had some early models of active inference. I'm super excited to bring this to, to dive into this conversation with you. Uh, I'll share some of where I've been at uh, in relation. And that is I've really done a lot lately of merging. I mean, I did this before, but really hunting uh, for the relationship between behavioral investment theory um, and recursive relevance realization. Um, and it's always been the case that recursive relevance realization is dropped into behavioral investment. Uh, but the processes by which we're exploring alternative paths of investment uh, the processes by which we're reducing surprise, framing relevance, and then engaging in both conservation and growth in a constructive opponent process, uh, the elements of reciprocal narrowing, reciprocal opening, which I think have a lot to do with things like addiction and, and spirituality. Chris John, that's exactly what John talks about. But I've been mulling that shit over recently uh, in a fine grained detail, perhaps, than I had before, but not really worked it out. So um, it's a wonderful opportunity to have you here and uh, kick some stuff around. So uh, that's where I'm coming from. Sure. Well, what pops up for me is sort of a, a, a triangle of types of inner practice, right? So one form uh, involves a kind of strengthening and unfolding self-cultivation model, which is based very much in leaning into difficulty. The famous quote from Chograv Trungpa that I love, someone says, what do you do if you find yourself in hell? And he said, I try to stay there, right? He 
try, he tries. It's a discipline to say, I'm going to be with this discrepancy and this discomfort. I'm going to maybe tantrically transmute it by intentionally remaining as close to the inner dissonance as possible until it undergoes some shift. And there's actually questions. let me let me pause on that just because yeah. I'll I'll share with uh, folks. So over the uh, I didn't go to the emerge conference in part because I got I had COVID and then I got a double rebound with a very very the worst sore throat I've ever had in my life. I stopped swallowing about four days into it. It lasted eight days, um, and I was really trying to work on this with only moderate success. Um, and that was I was definitely trying to lean into the pain, lean into being with the pain and being okay with the pain and maintaining my focus with that without bitching, just like without trying to escape. Um, and I'd find myself doing that some. So I'll just I'll share with the audience my own little, and I'm a child when it comes to this kind of stuff for, for clarity. So, um, but I'm just saying in terms of my own uh, here and now on the ground practice, um, I engaged in that for a couple of days when I was really trying to, suffering quite a bit and really trying to maintain my presence in relation. That's a fair kind of summary of the, at least the kind of structures that would be uh, operative in that kind of quote. And that's, um, there, there's an ancient quality to that, right? That ancestral spirituality had many elements of ordeal. Uh, they lived in a lot of environmental conditions where they had to be robust, anti-fragile, right? That they, they, um, that inner friction that we get at the gym was a regular component of ancient life and therefore a regular component of ancient spirituality. It was driven by trying to get deeper, trying to get stronger. You know, the Stoics were like that as well. How can I maintain wisdom under these conditions? Lovely. Then there's a whole set of practices which suggest that that is sort of the key interpretive or perceptual error of the universe of illusion. Uh, Joseph Chilton Pierce, number of interesting books. He calls it the error correction error. That as long as we're in the mode of responding to a discrepancy in our cognitive and perceptual fields, we will endlessly circle around the same egoic limitations and never break free into the universe of consciousness and bliss that we associate with the satisfaction of a friction. But wow. it's actually priorly present and we only come close to it when we satisfy uh, a certain discrepancy getting resolved and that actually what we need to do is get off the entire model of discrepancy response and into the uh, currently existing always already present non-discrepancy of being right so there's a number of models like that in spirituality <sighs> and then there are models that make it ambiguous right <laughs> one of the classic model is the zen koan where transcendental relief and intense cognitive friction between mutually exclusive opposites are found totally conjunct with each other in that practice wow so friction practices anti-friction practices and simultaneous friction and non-friction practices so they all seem to be in circulation throughout the discourse of spiritual history wow yeah, so let me chew on that for a little while. So one of the things that I, in fact, I talked with John about this, uh, and and I know that he is working on this. So John and I are gonna are, are looking to do a, a next cognitive science so series, and we'll be in contact with you and and setting this up and having you uh, join this on transcendent naturalism. Okay, uh, and part of this for John, I've got my own frame on this, but one of the things that for John was, he was talking about was the recursive relevance realization framing zooming all the way back and had a moment and then he's sort of been playing with this as a moment as the dissipation 
of the frame. Okay. Um, so when I'm hearing you, so I said, correct me if I'm wrong, but when I'm, um, and what was the author who's been playing with this idea? I don't know. I'm not familiar. Well, uh, Joseph Tilton Pierce. Okay. Right Pierce. Okay. Right. And then, the, so what I'm hearing is sort of the recursive relevance realization, predictive processing framing structure. And then they zoom back and you frame on that and you frame on that. And then the issue, one of the questions is, could you actually, can you zoom all the way out to the sense that the frame itself dissipates? Um, is that, would you say that that, if I describe John's insight along those lines, do you think that that's what Pierce is getting at at all? Or is that consistent? I think that's one of the unanswered questions, right? I okay. think there's several ways to approach bringing these things together, right? Mm -hmm. We could suppose that you, you have a level of oppositional processing and, and with frame issues and that a higher level or higher layer of that same process would seem like it dissolves those discrepancies. You could also have a situation where you move in and out of the frame, right? Mm -hmm. John's work is sort of focused on that space. Totally. Mm -hmm. That matches a lot of the phenomenology of people who write about spirituality because their plateau states, their peak experiences does seem to be something they move in and out of. But there's also the grand proposal that there's a a, either a pre-existing state or a permanently acquirable condition that you don't move in and out of. Mm. Um, now, there's also, I'm throwing the metaphysics of adjacency stuff here. Well, I was actually, I, I was totally, you were priming me on it. I was like, where's all the space in between? <laughs> exactly, right. Fundamentally, uh, it might not be possible to think discrepancy or non-discrepancy apart from each other. So you always have some gradient a uh, flexible gradient of exchange between those, wherever this is closer to that Zen Koan model. You've always got discrepancy and non-discrepancy. You've always got error and non-error that you can't, you literally can't have the one concept without the other one as the uh, establishing reference point for it. That's that's really interesting. And, and it was in my mind, I don't know if we want to jump right into this, but um, so I was listening to some of John's after Socrates, okay? Uh, and he was talking about the concept of the forms and wondering what they were. And he sort of discounted some fairly simplistic notions of what platonic forms might be. And then he was talking to me what essentially I heard, and I know you're following this, and I don't remember the exact section that it was, but I'll throw this out there since we got to the, uh, the, the metaphysics of adjacency. He was basically saying, well, there's the thing that it is and it's not, and it both simultaneously is, is this in-between space as it fluctuates between it is and it's not, in, in essence. Um, if you are familiar with what I'm talking about and if that resonated with you in the philosophy of adjacency, and then if that speaks to you here, I'd really, really curious if those are if those are adjacent associations you're willing to track down for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's very pertinent here, right? And one of the, I mean, philosophically, one of the questions for me is, is the ontology of reality structured such that that movement John's describing inside and outside of boundaries is there a reason that that's the most efficient adaptive mechanism because it reflects something in the fundamental structure of reality? So is reality structured? Are the metaphysics such that just inside or just outside of boundaries is actually the fundamental condition prior to the boundary conditions? They might be secondary. Right. Then you've got a situation, I mean, whether we take it ontologically or we take it uh, as sort of a behavioral phenomenology, <laughs> that's a very interesting space, the space around edges. It's a flexible, intercontextual affordance. Totally. And one of the places that shows up in spiritual practice is 
um, looking between systems. So this is a very uh, Gurdjieffian approach. Gurdjieffian self-awareness is a little bit different than classical mindfulness. Hmm. Instead of the dominant self being the witness observer of everything that's arising, what you're looking for are juxtapositions between subselves. Okay. I actually heard a woman talking about her depression this morning, and she was saying, I know it's the episode isn't going to last forever, but it felt like it was going to last forever. Mm -hmm. So you've got two systems operating. They're communicating because they're relative to the same topic mm -hmm. and they're disagreeing, but they're in exchange. They actually have come closer together because mm -hmm. they can communicate that disagreements and you are being provoked into a metacognitive mode because you can see that at right. this room, just conceptually. Oh, I'm multiple. And in that moment, you're sort of more yourself, but you're mm. more yourself by observing what could be yourself and what could be yourself in some kind of flexible proximity to each other. Normally, they might be construed as too far apart to communicate so that you don't see that discrepancy between them. So one of the ways error correction shows up is as a constant flexible attempt to um, modulate the incomplete harmonization, the incomplete conjunction between these things. But that's all occurring in in the flexible adjacency space between them, which is the you know uh, implied precondition. Lovely. Uh, you're familiar with internal family systems. John talked a little bit about this as a therapeutic approach um, to cultivate various aspects of the self, the modal operations, guardians, and structures that um, are interrelating, sort of solving different problems in relation. Uh, the idea fundamentally being that, that there is, well, depending on what version, but if you take the Schwartz version, there's a core self uh, that can then be in contact with these. Uh, John, I know, questioned that in the, uh, in the um, after Socrates, and I think with good reason. Um, do you see like the therapy of internal family systems and the spiritual practice of uh, the, the self as you're describing it that way in its dialogical format uh, very congruent? Uh, I do. I, I see it as a sort of a subset. I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of different ways to parse out what the perspectival options are within mm -hmm. the individual, right? So the family systems approach is one. Masaglioli um, mm -hmm. has one. Heart, mm -hmm. mind, and body is one. Chakras mm -hmm. are one. Um, perception of a circumstance in the world and perception of a self, mm. right? Or even when you're in a struggle with another human being, largely your model of yourself and your model of them are in struggle with each other. So there's a lot of different ways to break it down. Mm. But uh, what internal family systems does really well is do it in a way that's very pertinent to people's experience of growing up and continuing mm -hmm. to struggle as a human being who comes out of domestic circumstances mm -hmm. and has to try to make some peace with those different forms. I think the basic mechanisms that work in internal family systems are applicable to the variety of modes in which we might parse out the subselves. Hmm. And in terms of like, uh, are you, you're drawn to this, obviously it relates to the metaphysics of adjacency, also, it's relating. Are you in, finding yourself being pulled to this from a spiritual practice standpoint? Are you wondering about what this would mean for people in general engaging in, in the more practice side? Kind of what what is making this alive for you these days? There's a couple of things. I mean, the adjacency thing makes me interested. My model of spirituality as being um, the production of an additional harmony generated out of a new kind of relationship between subcells makes me interested because like I was just mentioning, 
that sense of mismatch uh, in many cases can be interpreted as um, an incomplete uh, connection or coordination between subcells, mm-hmm. which is a, an immediate indicator of the possibility of adjusting that to get a higher grade of coordination between subcells to produce something like a meta self that then becomes the driver of individual spiritual experience. However, there's an additional component, which is um, when I think about translating that into a functional contemporary religiosity, which I think is is another way of saying you know, what we need culturally as human beings, uh-huh. uh, I think that has to bring different domains of knowledge, different genres of cultural productivity into conjunction. Uh-huh. And so one of those modes is the spiritual discourse. One of those modes is the scientific discourse. One of those modes is information theory discourse. The more dimensions of the discourse can come together, the greater the chance that we can generate a a, a religionizing framework for contemporary people. So if there's something coming out of a lot of the sciences at their leading edge, I would like the spiritual framing to be able to meet that so that they can be on the same team so that it becomes a socially applicable thing and not just an individual practice situation. Right. Well, that coherent integration across, you know, that computation information theory stuff, what science and mind for cognition is, is pulling and the history of sort of the spiritual investigations along those lines. That's a, that's a good coherent integrated sensibility, modern, modern sensibility or whatever. Um, and using the model itself to sort of scale up at the collective level, right? So we can apply it in relationship to the different modes uh, of, of being that we have and, re- and how to afford more uh, a coherent, integrated, constructive opponent process within ourselves as we bring these things various with higher resolution but ultimately we can scale that up. Obviously internal family systems. It's like, well, wait a minute, it's modeled off of our family systems. What are their knowledge systems? And can we utilize this to actually model the interface of our various knowledge justification systems? And can we do a lot better at pulling those things together in a way that affords harmony is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying. So. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In terms of sort of the, uh, when you, I mean, you know, in terms of your expertise in spirituality, uh, you mentioned Pierce. Are there other systems that really seem to speak to this in relationship to kind of the, you know, sort of guiding lights and frames of reference that you're bringing to bear through that? There aren't too many, really, which is why I think it's a wide open field. You mm-hmm. know, I mentioned uh, Gurdjieff as an example right. of who leans into the mismatch side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pierce, who's trained in more of the Hindu mystical approach, you know, okay. studied with Dananda and some other guys over there. There's a tendency, I think, in the Indian tradition to focus on uh, perhaps the reality, perhaps the hyperbole of a stable, always existing trans discrepancy condition, the Dananda. Mm. And so mm. right, the quality of being is always one of bliss. It's never one of a mismatch because it's uh, reality itself is eternally self-consistent. Hmm. So if you're dealing with it at that level of the most dialed out possible experiential frame, you wouldn't encounter anything as disagreeing with anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, um, but that's an interpretive model that they apply to their experiences. It's long been conflated with the experience itself. 
I think it's quite possible for people to have the kinds of experience those people are pointing to and describe it differently. Hmm. Yes. No, that makes good sense. Um, and that, I, I think what you say there in terms of the wide openness, as well as the framing, uh, you know, it makes me understand why you're excited about that. Um, uh, actually, why don't I circle in and say, I, I think you have been tracking the after Socrates thing that John's been doing we talk about this uh, one there's one piece in there that's very congruent with metaphysics of adjacency what do you see in there what are you wondering about uh anything there that you want to uh, highlight in relationship to what is sparking you know sort of science spirituality bridging in addition to what we're talking about here but you know one of my favorite things about john's series is the way that what i think of as shamanism is creeping into it hmm. that there's a I talk about the subconscious turn in philosophy mm -hmm. and spirituality. There's also this notion of guardians and ally work. Mm -hmm. There's also, um, that he quotes um, Socrates from the Phaedrus describing his experience of the daemon. Yep. John doesn't emphasize this, but Socrates says, I heard a voice coming from this place, coming from mm -hmm. this spot, right? So there's a sense to me of, of what's lurking around John's discussion, which is the way that place and the way that ecology and the way that the plurality of the subconscious act as fundamental interlocutors in the dialogical process, right? Because there's a tendency with Socrates, even in the elaborate way that John's reframing him, to still think of him as a, an individual male, rational, and urban figure. Mm. When the majority of human spiritual and developmental wisdom cultivation has taken place in a largely pre-civilized ecological context mm -hmm. um, where the imaginal discourse is only a little bit between people within a human context and mm -hmm. a lot between uh, inter-organismic, interspecies, um, what is the voice of the place, all of these kinds of elements that are framed in shamanism in a certain way and de-emphasized a little bit in the classic Western wisdom discourse. That's really interesting and, and been quite synergistic. I was just having a, a brief email exchange with Benita Roy, uh, and she was happy uh, that I'm emphasizing minded animals, um, uh, and you know, instead of my mental behavior, which I and I agree, it's it's come alive uh, when I'm talking about mindedness and minded animals. And one of the things that she said is what we have failed to appreciate is much of uh, animism and spirituality is found in the contact of our ancestors with animals, both hunting them, you know, cultivating them, being with them, embodying our relationship with them, uh, living that out and, and you know, sort of in the minded ecology of the entire structure. So I'm, uh, I certainly find myself in, oh yeah, you know, that, that's a really important point when she said it. And now that's becoming even more alive right here. So that's really interesting. Yeah, that, that concerns something uh, that Benita and I share and have discussed quite a bit. Okay. She's been joking about doing a Before Socrates series. Uh, which <laughs> you could do. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be totally. <laughs> uh, there's something going back to the earlier issue. There's something interesting here about where we allow ourselves to encounter discrepancy or not. Mm. So if I'm out in the woods, so to speak. Okay. Um, and what I'm experiencing is just the homogenous sense of socialized human intelligence. Mm -hmm. I, that's what I see everywhere. So I'm seeing the animals through that lens as mm -hmm. if there's one. But the second I say, oh, maybe this squirrel knows something 
and he sees the world differently than me. Now there's a mismatch for my system to begin to correct somehow. And that correction could be the production of new wisdom. But I have to allow the discrepancy of perspectives to be there first in order to trigger that process. Totally. Yes. And, and ultimately, um, I, I think it's the awakening of that perspectival shifting and maintaining presence with it in some ways that, you know, in a transpersonal and then ultimately, you know, transsentient, you know, transexistence sort of way that, you know, for me, at least in some ways, it's that unfolding that is certainly a part of the heart of spirituality itself. Is that fair from your vantage point? Yeah, I think so as well. And um, I guess an, an area where I would be intrigued uh, to hear your perspective is is on the the structures and the patterns by which we suppress as access to discrepancy, right? <laughs> this is one of the areas like in shadow work where very often someone has a pattern that's visible to others and they just don't see it. Had a great conversation with former, possibly current cult leader, Andrew Cohen the other day, <laughs> right? And he, he's got a new book about the collapse of his community and what he had to go through and his hmm. ayahuasca experiences and these moments where he started to actually internalize other people's feeling of having been betrayed by him in that circumstance. Right. But up to that point, even though everybody had been giving him this message, he had not been experiencing any mismatch to correct. Yep. And so that our ability to grow and develop or possibly even to self-regulate is sabotaged by occlusions of some kind. And you might be in a really unique position to speak to the nature of those occlusions. Yes. Uh, well, I think I certainly have an angle on it through my work in, in the clinical world. Um, so absolutely. So in terms of, you know, from my vantage point, the local seat of consciousness is, you know, framed as an egoic eye position. Um, but it's an egoic eye position that's going to create eye, the early emergence of it to get stable has got to be a justified state of being. Um, and so if you follow the logic of the justification hypothesis, justification system theory, that there's a real challenge that I have now that I can talk and you can ask me questions is that I have to narrate my inner experience and do so in a way that legitimizes what it is that I'm doing. Um, the relationship between that and the animal self, the core and primate experience of being is called the Freudian filter. Okay. Um, and then we've talked a lot about sort of the defense mechanisms of uh, the urges and aspects of the animal in the world uh, of ways of what it, what it wants. And of course, uh, I shine the light on the influence matrix. So we want power, you want love, you want freedom, maybe comes even from sex and aggression if we go psychoanalytic, certainly in part. Um, but there's a whole bunch here then that's basically potentially unjustifiable. Okay. And the, uh, and the structure of that is to feel like you're a president, but very often you're a press secretary, meaning that it's an after the fact motivated reason where my obligation is to generate an explanation. And then I need to be consistent. And then I need to be in this justified state of being that's somewhat consistent um, and so that I can then grab on what are the patterns that I see. Um, when that's working well, it's a coherent integrated system between I thou, I me, my animal self and the filtration, and there's checks and balances feedback. What a personality disorder emerges, I would argue, is when the justification system is systematically threatened by an aspect of the self and what it anticipates from the I thou, and then builds a defense against it, okay? So I'll give you a classic example. 
many individuals with borderline personality need to be seen. Okay. Um, they have strong, both sort of social connection and neuroticism. So they both need to be seen, need to be attended to. They feel empty at the same time. They hate being controlled. They also fear that they're really manipulative and they don't feel that they're being manipulative if they're sending really strong distress signals. So they'll get accused of being, uh, you know, emotional vampire. Okay. They'll check their heart and they're basically, I really needed this. I'm not doing this to control you. So they'll develop a justification. I don't know why people see me this way, but it's totally not true. That's not who I am. Once you build a justification that this is not who you are, when in fact a part of you functions that way, then you actually block yourself to receiving feedback. You already have a justification that inoculates you from the feedback. Oh, people see me this that way that they don't understand me, or that's just bullshit, or blah, blah, blah. So you develop a justification that creates the, the signal comes in, it's threatening, and then you build rationalizations that block it. What that means is you can't learn. You know, you get other feedback that then comes in that says you have having you're sending the signal out in the world. You've already built an egoic justificatory filtration system that says, no, I'm not. And therefore, you can't upgrade the system. And so what you do, basically, is you find yourself in a situation where you're getting, um, you know, feedback that doesn't jive. And then you rationalize it and repress it, but you don't upgrade and learn. And so you don't engage in error correction. Does that resonate? Yeah, that's great. And it makes me think of, you know, if, if there's a minimal justification and self-consistency needed by people just to function, okay. But then there's a range in which they may have different senses of what a viable justification system is. Because one of the things that seems to me in dealing with students and colleagues and my kids is some of the, my I have this intuition that some of the greatest impact I can have is to speak well of dissonance, right? To, to create an emotional atmosphere and an intellectual argument in which it seems like leaning into friction or undergoing remorse or acknowledging uh, where I'm rejecting feedback, that these are good things. Totally. So then I, then people might be able to more easily feed them into their justification system rather than thinking of them as the opponent of their justification system. And on that basis, might more spontaneously evolve sets of self-corrective and self-developmental praxis. Totally. Uh, so the way I think about that in terms of what I want to try to do is create a safe space uh, where the person, the core primate heart feels known and valued. Now, this is many people can't achieve this. And if they can't, they're going to be in a somewhat character armor defensive spot. If, if the, the basically the structure as I envision it is, is that when individuals are feeling vulnerable and the, almost all of us have modes of vulnerability and some people live in this, okay? Um, what the issue is, I have to avoid being realized to be a fraud and to be not worthy and to be unworthwhile. And that's, that's a terror. And so what I then need to do is I need to build a justification that seeks evidence that I'm not that. So I'm constantly sort of circling. What that means is I'm actually acting to defend, to create a structure so I don't fall in. Okay. But fundamentally, then the shadow dynamic here is that although I hope that I not, I really am fearful that I am this way. And so then the issue of dissonance is terrifying in this regard. Okay. And this is why this individual personality disorders have structured character armor and difficulty learning. 
On the flip side, if you can do the combination of what you said with what I said, and that is have the core self feel worthy, right, um, at its fundamental structure, and then watch an egoic justifying process on top of that, and both love that and engage in its awkwardness and its confusion and its uncertainty and maintain a learning environment that, yes, you are a rationalizer. <laughs> yes, you do this shit. Yes, this really does hurt. And it's okay. And you're still worthy. Situationally, maybe there's shame, but core elements are worthy and you can hold the way you dynamically relate. And that opens you up so that you can see, I mean, in John's after Socrates, like we're going to learn how to be fucking foolish and sinful. Well, if you are already terrified that you're, oh my God, maybe I am. And I have to defend against it. That doesn't sound so appealing. If we can help people get centered and then open themselves up to the humility and the sense of foolishness and then the restructure, and you could see that and be like, yep, there we are going people. That's a, that's a totally different way of living in the world as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, to be able to secure people and to be able to both template and introduce an argument that it's good, right? Like um, people who do ice baths or, you know, the Wim Hof stuff. One of the things you have to do in a way is when you feel a uh, thermal intensity of some kind, you're practicing telling yourself, oh, this is a good thing. Like normally I think it's a bad thing, but I've undertaken the context of this training and now in addition to hopefully being secured and seeing examples of other people doing it, I have a story in my head where I can go, I think I hate this, but I'm probably wrong. Maybe I love this. Maybe this is the best thing for me. <laughs> That's so interesting. That's so interesting. I was just having a conversation uh, with a, a, a runner coach, okay, who found my work, uh, Steve Sisson, and he's a running coach, a marathon runner, okay? And he's actually basically, although he, I'm not sure he exactly used this word, but he's essentially helping people see the running of a marathon uh, as a spiritual exercise. And, and he called it the feast of suffering. Now, I've never run a marathon. I can't believe people run marathons. <laughs> but the basic narrative of, for many runners of the marathon is that you can do it for 15 to 18 miles, okay? But then you hit a wall or very regularly you hit the 18th mile wall. And the idea of going another six miles when your body starts screaming at you is essentially the classic shutdown point. And what he's trying to actually do is he's trying to help people uh, through the feast of suffering, trying to help people realize that this isn't just about a performance time. It's about the self. It's about the way you're relating to the world. And he, and he was telling me that he has this structure where he asks them this question, fundamentally, am I close to this or am I open to this? Okay. Um, and he felt like that question was a very, very useful framing in relating to the ways in which the, and to me, that openness has everything to do with the, the overall framing and the structure of the meaning of that in a really interesting way. So a lot of resonance there. Just again, I was just having this conversation, I think it was yesterday. Um, yeah, we've had discussions around um, what the trans-justificatory system might look like. And so between the, let's say, normal plethora of human justification systems and the possibility of a trans-justificatory system, there's something like a meta-predictive, meta-justificatory option, right? Because in that story, that person is going, I'm actually expecting to hit that wall. I know mm -hmm. I've hit it before and I'm anticipating it again. I've adjusted the balance in terms of the surprise that's showing up in the experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just being surprised or not being surprised. 
I've noted my surprise and now I am anticipating it. Mm. And most or at least many kinds of spiritual or therapeutic self-correction involve that kind of minimal metacognition of remember you've had this experience before it's going to happen again when she says that you're going to feel like this oh right right yeah i am going to feel like that what am i going to do then and it opens up this ongoing developmental space which still has justification systems it's not gone to the other side but it's operating in a radically different way than standard justification systems totally Totally. And in fact, yeah, I, I mean, what that says speaks to me is sort of what my own evolution around this is, yeah, getting meta, you know, and then I did my meta values thing, which is dignity, well-being and integrity, and then just trying to create a holding space for the process, you know, that allows the process, you know, create curious, accepting, loving the MO process. And then what I, what this brings to bear is, oh, what is the interrelationship then within the structures around, say, error correction and adjacency and the dynamics of a, co, a, a constructive opponent process versus a destructive opponent process? And can we create that meta-stable trans-justificatory space for the evolution of that collective uh, understanding? That's really, that's, that's, that's pretty rich, I think. Now, another thing that's uh, popping up for me now, and it connects to John's series a little bit, because John's talked about uh, what I would call it, the adjacency of like the, the induction of noise into the frame mm -hmm. by going just outside of it, not too far outside of it. You're yep. looking for sweet spot, and he believes a lot of uh, intuitive intelligence is gained implicitly through flow experiences and other kinds of encounters where we are able to get outside of our frame, but in a way that's still close enough for it to be pertinent to the frame so that it can evolve. Yep. That introduction of noise or uh, chaos, something like that is intriguing mm -hmm. because one of the basic, uh, basic dichotomies is order versus chaos, right? Absolutely. And there's, um, there's something that has, that smacks of a social ethic to me about that as well. Because mm -hmm. like what John's saying about the necessary introduction of noise into the, otherwise closed down frame. And I also think about something like Nassim Taleb, who's mm -hmm. suggesting the need to become anti-fragile by not allowing the system to over-optimize. And totally. then this gets to religion because Taleb's been very clear in saying that one of the major benefits of having religions has been to propose practices that people don't want because we like to over-optimize, right? So mm. It's an example of something that's really good for us to do periodically. It uh -huh. disrupts the normal cycle of our digestion, uh, but we tend not to want to do it. So one of the roles for religion is to uh, help supply an ethic whereby people can become more robust through the introduction of noise and disruption that they might otherwise eliminate from their system. So in a way, it's allowing allowing the encounter with what feels like error to proceed in a constructive way for us. Uh, and that won't happen in a society where we try to smooth everything out and over-optimize for intactness. Totally. And I, and I really, I want to say here very clearly that I deeply appreciate that. And the reason that I want to say very clearly that I deeply appreciate it is that upon first glance, many people react to you talk and the garden and all of this as sort of, sort of this pristine utopian structure of of elegant order beauty goodness and truth that then is going to bring everything all together um 
And, and you have to understand, I said this in another podcast, you have to understand that the origin of this is in the shit show of human suffering in clinical psychology. Um, so it's, it's embedded in a dialectic. Um, and it is absolutely crucial that we maintain, that's why I hang out on the intellectual dark web and listen to all those, you know, although they have a different kind of ethos in certain regards, it's a beautiful opponent process that adds error, it adds tension, it adds confusion. Um, we never want to get to a place where we have some formal foundationalist authority system. As soon as that happens, that kind of ordering structure, uh, you know, you're in deep trouble at multiple levels. So this chaos versus order dynamic, the need to introduce noise, both for general creativity, but the need to introduce the distribution of experience, of perspective, uh, of uh, to build anti-fragile structures, to enable fragile structures that can be robust and broad and flexible and adaptive. I absolutely see that as necessary. Um, part of my mind goes toward different kinds of practices that can harness these mechanisms. Uh, there's a variety of ways to approach that, but I'm curious um, if you want to talk about it, like what your take is on how Jill Nephew has been approaching this, which is to say there's a notion of setting up an, a socially safe, digitally automated structure for allowing people to feel out where there are discrepancies and process through those until they naturally adapt a little bit differently. And that this is maybe doesn't do all of spirituality for a person, but it can do a lot of the general work and it does it outside of the problematic dynamics that come with interpersonal situations. Yeah, I want to go through inquiry. Uh, that's our pro program. Uh, and I haven't had a chance to do that as much. I will say that I have had a number of, over the last three months or so, in fact, we're due for another conversation. Jill and I had a, we did a you talking uh, episode um, and I'm, I'm finding my way into the natural intelligence frame that she's cultivating. Um, and I absolutely deeply appreciate uh, her appreciate her understanding. And it's very congruent with a sort of a you talk verveki structure um, of the ways in which the system uh uh, can embody a sense-making structure, the ways in which we get parasitic processes attaching ourselves in the current kind of culture, and the processes by which we can come to see the world, experience the world through this kind of like breakdown and get grounded in our natural intelligence and ways of being in the world. Uh, for those that are not familiar, you know, she's a, 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 a jumper. Um, why am I blanking on the term? You know, cliff jumper or whatever, parachute. And the intensity of that process, whereby you actually have to know and make sure you're not trapped uh, and overlook various things, requires this embedded, multi-parallel processing natural intelligence system. And she's wanting to, you know, uh, orient us. And so I love the argument in relationship to that. Um, I'd really like to see inquire. Um, one of the things that I struggle a little bit with Jill, and it's a it's a stylistic kind of thing. So I tend to be sort of agreeable. In the sense that I, and I come into psychology and I'm like, there are a lot of really good elements. I think we got stuck on defining ourselves against each other. So one of the things I wonder about Jill sometimes is sort of like, okay, this is the right way to do it. <laughs> you know, and we have the science to, and it's like, I think you've got the science about a way to tap into a profound sense-making structure. But when we say do it, what do you mean? Are you actually talking about really engineering humanity into a next step? And then the issue is, you don't know, you have a computer program. <laughs> we don't know how to do that at the level of gathering structures together, because there's a huge now uh, system that we actually have to change the consciousness and change the practice around. How do we actually leverage that? That's a different, to me, a different kind of question than finding 
what is at the core of a lot of what we need to be doing to awaken ourselves to the current situation that we're in. And I think she's really honing herself in on some of the foundational elements to tap uh, our core natural intelligence. So I'm very supportive of her in that way, for sure. Yeah, one of the things that's come up for me in my discussions with Jill echoes um, where I started this discussion, hmm. because there are, um, let's say a person was being mindful in a certain way where they were opening themselves to the sensation or the appearance of some kind of mismatch in their perceptual and cognitive field. Mm -hmm. uh, when you encounter that, what do you then do, right? Mm -hmm. There's one branch of therapeutic spirituality, which would say that's where you begin your investigation, mm -hmm. right? Jill's tools sort of do that. You're going to talk it through and maybe have some counterfactual scenarios, right? Talk, how did it happen? How did it not happen? What are the parts? You know, in Buddhism, they do a thing where they you might break it up into its components. There's lots of ways to work with the content associated with the error detection. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there are a lot of traditions that say, once you've encountered that, you're encountering it by your system's uh, response to the error. And then you just release the response. Now, there's issues with both of them, right? On the one hand, you'd say, well, if you're detecting something and you're just hacking your system so that you can get the completion without going through the process, maybe you're losing out on a lot of knowledge about yourself and the world adaptively. Mm -hmm. However, the other side, you could say, yeah, if you think you're going to go through it, you're going the long way around. You're never going to be able to complete that process. At some point, you either have to exit the process to direct release or not. You're never going to get there down that road. Right. right. And that's an interesting, subtle tension within the history of spiritual discussion. Well, it, it actually really, you know, it's got parallels for me in relationship to just uh, the focus on sort of meditative mindfulness and the awareness of awareness and then zooming that out in relationship and what we do in psychotherapy, whereby we're going to then embrace the, the conflicts of the self. Uh, we're going to examine the ego. We're going to look to see where the discrepancy is, try to hold them, try to work them through to create new narratives, create new learning experiences in relation, uh, as opposed to say the detachment of the self in general. So it sounds to me like there are parallels. I certainly want to little you talks, little sayings, mantras is toggle between self and awareness. Um, and, and what I would uh, sort of think of that there would be parallels in relationship to that would be essentially um, the constructive opponent process of both of those angles and their interrelations would be where I would be most inclined to orient. Yeah, I have a... Um... Uh, sort of both and internal approach to a lot of these things. I'm trying to think of a good example. Like if I was working with balancing internal systems of some kind, then I might um, spend a little time trying to derive information from them and then move into a mode where what I'm looking for is, is just the sense of mismatch. I'm trying to steer a bit like an airplane or a dolphin who's just all it does is get a signal that it's off course and steer back. Mm -hmm. Like if there is my mind and heart, are they perfectly balanced? No, they're not perfectly balanced. So I'm just constantly attentive to the imbalance. But if they slip into balance, then there's a, a state that I can enjoy. And as mm -hmm. that state uh, releases, you can see the release and just switch back into it. Hmm. But if you forget that, and then you're back in the situation where you've got this plurality of factors, 
then return to uh, focusing on the mismatch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But all of that's in the pragmatic domain. It doesn't necessarily answer the larger philosophical and ontological questions, which I imagine ultimately have to be answered by undoing, uh, structurally undoing the dichotomy between the apparent opposites. Right. Right. Well, the uh, yeah, the ontology of this is really fascinating. Uh, you know, I, I definitely, as I enter into it, I'm more focused on the epistemological framing, but the emergence of this and the deep relationality of ontology is, well, something that I've definitely, I mean, in your work and Bruce's work and other people's work has really um, afforded, you know, I was reading up on some relational quantum uh, field theory stuff and and basically for them, it's relations all the way down potentially and how to frame that um, is a structural issue. So anyway, I think that uh, that ontological question is a very, very profound one, that fundamental ontological question. It is. It's a beautiful and intriguing contemplation. Uh, I think some of the contemplation itself has direct neurophysiological benefits. Uh, at the same time, it pertains to what is the nature of reality. I'm uh, Like Alexander Barr, I'm quite fascinated by Neil Bohr's complementarity model. Uh-huh. But some of the founders of the model of what's physically real have said, yeah, you know, that little area where we can't quite sync up the models, that's the nature of reality. It, it inherently doesn't quite sync up. Uh-huh. It's close, but it's imperfect in that sense. Right. right? Like you think about uh, position and momentum, say, as a coupled pair of variables. Uh-huh. Uh, and you, can, you can't perfectly distinguish. They're always going to be linked. If you get a little more of one, you're going to lose a little more of another at an exact ratio, right? A, a fragment of Planck is uh-huh. going to give you the amount of fuzziness that's always going to be present. Right. But if you accept that the complementarity and the fuzziness are always present, you get a more exact predictive set than if you assume things just are what they are. Uh-huh. It's extremely profound. And I think if that turns out to be the case in the physical world, then philosophy, spirituality, psychology, everybody should be thinking, can we make our models better by starting from the presupposition of a not-quiteness? Well, yeah, I love that. Uh, and the, and the in-betweenness uh, and the finding of the sort of the vacancy of the form in between this reference uh, as somehow being connected to the ontological, you know, real. I, I, that, that has metaphorical appeal to me. In fact, the origin of the coin is basically finding a, a sort of equivalence between measurement, the observing measurement structure with the energy structure, and then finding that relationship and then basically saying, oh, there's a mathematical relationship in between these two equivalencies. So if I say this equivalency, I pull it out, and then I created the little architecture of the coin, and basically, I, well, this is where our little subjective knowing is making contact at some foundational element. Uh, so I, I'm not, I'm not want to make a super strong claim that way, but on a general loose associative uh, adjacency claim, that's fucking cool. I like that a lot. Uh, what else has been standing out to you from John's new series? Um, so for me, I am definitely enjoying. The I, I mentioned this in a conversation that I had with him. Um, the whole dialectic to dialogos, I, I was really involved in that. And, and then when he was telling me they don't really talk too much about it. Um, I mean, the like Plato and other people are not really uh, delineating what that is, uh, not laying it out. I thought, that, oh, that was cu- curious. So then it was, you know, he made a good case that it was this absent kind of structure. And he gave the hypotheses about why they didn't talk to talk about it. Um, 
And then when he led me up to this being uh, participatory knowing, the sort of foundational root of participatory knowing, um, which is, you know, the identity uh, of the agent arena relation across its fundamental structure, um, and then the capacity to find resonance with that and the hunting for resonance with that and, and, and being not being able to procedurally, propositionally narrate that, but be able to, to find right relation through embodiment of the agent arena relationship itself. Um, and that creating a ground for which a dialectic dialogos process unfolds. Um, I, I found that was artful and, and a bit of a surprise. <laughs> I was not necessarily seeing that participatory knowing was gonna be not surprising in retrospect, because this is John's baby. And, and the, I think of all the knowing that certainly is the core um, but that was one of the things that was delightful for me in relationship to tracking it. And, and, and that's another happy coincidence on the coin because it's the human identity function and the human identity function all the way down in relationship to the identity of self in relationship to the world and that iterative feedback loop uh, as the fundamental kind of structure. Um, so seeing the participatory identity element um, being fused and again, finding a coin resonance there um, and being surprised by that, that and, and really homing in even more on the participatory knowing structures. Um, that's been one of the things I've really enjoyed. Yeah, what leaps out to me from that, two things. One is the uh, John's emphasis on there being no methodology for dialectics dialogos. And that's partly why he's asserting that it's absent from the historical mm -hmm. record. And I have a curiosity about that relative to um scale right we might say so there's no propositional there might be no procedural way to do this no methodology but it might be that the parts have methodologies and the general phenomenon doesn't right there's no recipe for being healthy but your health regime might involve push-ups and there's a recipe for push-ups right? right there might be recipes for all the parts but not for the collective right um, but also i love the way um, the participatory adjustments between the agent and the arena seems really important. Uh, it seems like it touches in with the way that culture and cognition developed over most of human history in a very basic adaptive way, which was that we mostly were immersed in things. Most of our learning was implicit just because we could never, you never had distance. You were always in the jungle, in the situation, totally. in the tribe. Right. And we need to be able to you know, not return to that to the exclusion of advanced propositional and procedural knowing. That's a huge achievement. But we may have underserved participatory immersion as a basic sense-making tool. I certainly see that when it comes to um, shamanic-type spiritual practices, because one of the most basic things is just elemental experience. Just be in the water, go under the waterfall, be in the fire, be in the dance, be in the woods, be in the drug experience, be in the solitary meditative night, all those sorts of things. And it's not necessarily what you're trying to do in that circumstance. It's an intelligence exchange by virtue of the fact that you've slightly adjusted the agent arena balance. And now it's like the arena itself is being more informative than it might otherwise have been. Totally. And I see this totally congruent with what Jill's doing with natural intelligence herself, and, and at least at the principle of it, meaning that that there's an, a huge amount of perspectival participatory capacity that is normally in, enacted as a function of our embeddedness in the world um, and that we have extracted and created a technological bubble 
um, that that you know gives us enormous amount of safety, enormous amount of control, enormous amount of predictability, and then and then dominating our knowing structures with proposition and really disembodying us at, at multiple levels and, and underdeveloping that capacity. I certainly. Uh, I would say that that's pretty apparent if you look the, at the lens of the world that way, or, or, or certainly modern educational socialization structures. From your point of view, given that I'm going to talk for a little while at the upcoming Utah Consilience Conference, what would be the most awesome thing I can talk about? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that um, from my vantage point, you know, uh, what we are, what the Consilience Conference is fundamentally uh, doing is we're bridging various modes of understanding, okay, in a pluralistic way, but also in a way that affords a coherent, integrated structure. And um, I, frankly, Layman, you embody that. I mean, <laughs> Right. I mean, you know, let's let's be clear, folks. There are a lot of people that are looking for you to guide for guidance precisely because I think your capacity to hold a multi-perspectival um aspectualized being with flexibility, but also a degree of coherence, um, is wonderful. So I'll just say that. Okay. So so be show up and and participate, and you'll do what I hope you do. <laughs> uh in relationship to propositional uh structures, I mean. I certainly think that the issue of science and spirituality and the issue that we are um, homing in on in relationship to what are the sort of and an intellectual propositional thing, if we get a presentation, the intersection of where you are in relationship to the and these kinds of considerations um, feel enormously relevant and sharing your wisdom in spirituality and the intersection between, say, new information theory stuff, uh, Jill Nephew stuff, science stuff, et cetera. And the and what you are seeing arise in relationship to that, and what it means about how we understand ourselves, the kind of ca uh, practices that we would cultivate, um, that would be super congruent with a consilience of unifying knowledge on the one hand, then orienting toward a wisdom commons, and what's the kind of sensibility and embodied practices that go with that cultivation of those commons. Done. <laughs> I think you do that. <laughs> you know. And my really my overall hope really is essentially participatory, right? I mean, I, I want I'm trying to create this structure so that people can come in and share their propositions, right? And then embody a particular community and then disperse. And then we'll wonder to the extent that that's successful, we'll be able to create that. And then if we create hubs in which this is happening, and then create networks of hubs in which is that is happening, at least at the intellectual community level, I think that that's um you know, that's kind of a way to give a pulse uh, to this little corner of the internet. And that's what I'm hoping that this will start. There's an interesting shape I see, you know, this notion of like one of the most important things in the development of new culture, new theory is that people who can live the culture and get the theory to some degree have to be able to come together and disperse. And that is an important feature of what John's presenting in this series, which is, and it's not something I emphasize a lot when I talk about the integration of subsystems, which mm -hmm. is the, the alternation between these. There are modes where you're trying to get more of them together, and then they also have to break up and be able to have a differentiated experience so they can come back together productively. And I think this is one of the issues uh, with a lot of spiritual teachings is that it seems like what's being suggested is a different way of being that just completely eradicates and replaces your previous way of being, right? Once you get the right attitude, the right practice, the right 
consciousness position, you just always do that now, <laughs> right? And you're like, mm, that might not be right. It might be that you want to do it some of the time and then take some of the time to rest and regenerate and let it assimilate into your unconscious and let the, if we're doing it my way, super integration of functions that creates the numinous excess it can't necessarily always be doing that. At the very least, you have to sleep, you have to function. And you may need those parts to go out and do their own thing and come back together. So even though it can gradually accumulate to be more and more of your lived experience, it may not be desirable to have it be a totalized experience. It may be this sort of coming together and dispersing in the appropriate rhythm. That certainly can grow my experience of being in the world. I mean, I certainly carry this and, and certainly the you talk you know, ethos and logos, mythos, pathos is unbelievably central. I hold that, but it is absolutely a mode of activation. In fact, as you know, three times a week, I actually cultivate with a little THC, my mode of activation. I live in that particular world. I cannot and wouldn't want to live in that world all the time. I, I don't and I wouldn't, um, but it is definitely a flow in and flow out a uh, uh, bringing together of unity, a dispersion of, of diversity, uh, a coherent pluralism uh, on, around a dialectic. And I see what we're doing in this as trying to hold that space, come together in this particular conference, share our perspectives, disperse back out to the structures, see what other network structures can, can be, and see where this thing maybe goes in a year uh, as a sort of a, a rhythmic structure. We'll see whether that makes sense, but that's what I'm kind of hoping for, uh, something along those lines. <laughs> you just metabolize <laughs> yeah it's, uh, it's an ongoing problem <laughs> it's like there's a there's a, a thinking space and then there's like this meta thinking space but then there's like the aporia option and if you like you fly too close to the sun and then you're like oh yeah that uh. is <laughs> but i'm not saying anything now <laughs> right i'm just sort of melting and hopefully i'm getting some sort of self other grip in an intuitive way <laughs> i think that and maybe this was john's last episode um touching on what you were saying about you know i wouldn't want to live in that state all the time john's ethical emphasis on there being no like privileged part mm -hmm. there's no bit that has all the answers that you can reduce everything else to and he almost said that that's the moral message of this entire series is that yeah, no one of the systems or subsystems is going to be the one you can count on. It's not like <laughs> the body never lies and you can, or, or whatever it is, I can just rely on the left brain or something like that. They've all got to check each other and be in some kind of useful flux. Totally. Jason wise, they've got to be close enough mm -hmm. to be able to exchange and harmonize, but not so close that they fuse and get conflated. Yeah, I think there's all I think everybody in a meta modern sensibility is going to have a pretty, I, I, you know, an anxiety about some foundationalist, formal, single entity that is that is the true good and beautiful only. Um, I think this is his anxiety he was talking about uh, uh, Schwartz and the notion of the self at the, as, a, as a thing and it sits as an entity that sits as sort of the the center structure and he was uh, complaining some a lot about that and feeling that hesitancy and that was definitely doesn't any you know we have to have this plurality uh, of engagement and positionality and dynamic interface in between um that's where it it gets its structure um and i'll say from a utah vantage point again i'll say 
I talk about Utah as being a particular theoretical formulation, an American 20, 21st century psychology um, that affords us a particular way to solve a particular set of problems that haven't been solved. And the failure of them creates a lot of propositional network shit. Okay. But that means I'm contextualized in a set of justifications and a setup in a position that then fixes something in relation. But that's not like it's like I'm saying now I know what the fucking, you know, secret of the universe is <laughs> and it's foundational ontology. That's not what I'm saying, folks. Uh, you know, um, it's like, okay, here, and then we can get resonance around this because it corrects something that's uh, an old mistake. So we can build off of stuff but we're not gonna find the answer. We find a answer in relation and grow and shift and move. One of the things I've been finding lately is um, I take an enormous, perhaps perverse delight in uh, trying out negative interpretations of my most favored positive experiences. Okay. Just so that there's another player in that mm -hmm. game. Mm -hmm. uh, it reminds me of uh, I don't know if you've read a lot of H.P. Lovecraft, mm -mm. but um, in a way, he's the anti-integralist, right? Okay. The, um, the opening of the story that created the Cthulhu character, it says mm. the most merciful thing in the universe or in existence is the human mind's inability to correlate all of its contents, <laughs> right? So like, that's what the integrative pluralists are doing. <laughs> but he's like, yeah, I see that pattern. And you know what? It's the worst possible thing. You don't want to see what's out there, man. <laughs> and you're like, that's a really good voice to have in the mix. Right. Likewise, if you're undergoing a phenomenology where you're like, oh, I could I could get carried away with this phenomenology. There's a way for me to say this that sounds like it's resonant with some heroic, historical, spiritual shit. Mm -hmm. um, I should at least indulge the possibility that it's a parasite. Right. You know? Maybe it's an alien. Of course, it feels good. It would want me to feel good so that it could take over and do its dastardly deeds. You know, like just having that in play gives me a little bit more confidence than not having it in play. Totally. And I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a I hate uh, authoritarian uh, control structures myself. And even though as I seek coherence and, and an aspect of unity, um, the the felt sense of that is very, I'm very averse to it. And I'm always looking for and feel the 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 right resonance with well, what's the opponent process here? What's the what's the alternative? What's the antithesis? Um, and and not just to play the game, but to to look around and be constantly dynamically moving and engaging and open and not be and not be too far on the fucking order side as opposed to the chaos side, which is an inherent dialectic, um, for sure. This is actually an interesting thing. I mentioned Gurdjieff before, and and Jill nephew was in some Gurdjieff groups for a while. Mm. So he's an interesting uh, spirit. Yeah, I don't know much about it but it's uh he's really hard to unpack it's <laughs> deliberately a lifetime's work to figure out what he's talking about however one of the things he emphasizes is the um you know god's genius in creating the devil <laughs> right that that's a a way of generating the conditions for the right kind of self-awareness that you can't do from the homogenous authoritarian position you've mm -hmm. got to have a functional opposition of some kind even if it's really on team and not going to disrupt anything it has to at least be there so that there's some dialogical possibility some adjacency or wiggle room at the edge of your order making domain totally yeah no i see that as 
basically. And, and I think that these systems are component process systems almost inevitably. There's a, dia, a dialectic in the, in the sort of Eastern sense of the word um, as, as part of the dynamic of existence. And, and that feels uh, pretty omnipresent. And so to have that or to, or to or promote systems that essentially try to eliminate that or, or seem to be absenting that, well, I want to bring in the absent. <laughs> wonder, for sure. Okay. Let's see. Yeah. What uh, else you got? What else do I got? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that, 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 that certainly covers a lot of what I, I was, you know, hoping, you know, I'm, I'm going to see if there's anything else in the, I like the way I told John this, I like the way he set up the way the, uh, the Afra after Socrates, I was appreciative of that. And I'm wondering sort of about that uh, in terms of just my own, relationship with the way John is framing Socrates. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about that. Uh, I wrote a book. Did I tell you I wrote a book? <laughs> it might've come up. We might've had a discussion around that. I think we had a discussion on that. Podcakes. How's your, how about you? Are you doing a lot? Of, I mean, you got 6 million things going on. Anything you want to share the audience with about what you're uh, cooking these days? Uh, I'm, I'm setting up the next parallax online course for April. It's going to okay. be sort of a meta modern look at how yin yang can be usefully held in spiritual terms. We're calling it sacred technology and the sacred feminine or connectivity and connectedness. Huh. Good. Uh, next meta modern spirituality retreats coming up in May. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to be giving a talk for San Diego integral on the 11th. And of course, a uh, talk with the consilience thing as well as all my ongoing work with uh, my Substack and the Integral Stage and the Emerge websites. And uh, I'm going to give a lecture in April for Cadell Last's Hegel course. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're turning the, the Nietzsche um, group into a book. So I've got mm -hmm. a chapter in there on Zarathustra as a spiritual leader. Lovely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a and, bunch of stuff. Yeah, that's a bunch of stuff. And actually, just so just so people know, they already know, the conference we're planning, Consilience, is March 7th and 17th and 18th, Friday and Saturday, 9 to 4-ish. Uh, we're finalizing the schedule there. Layman's going to be giving a symposium on that. And we're going to be also talking about the arc disciplinary uh, work that we've been doing together and a bunch of other things that are people in the space. Uh, Emerge, is there Emerge Toronto? Oh, yeah, well, that's like going that? ahead. So Emerge huh? Toronto, September 17th to 19th with a pre-event for uh, facilitators who are going to do the more subtle work of holding the field and then after event for some of those people. Uh, we're looking at a couple hundred people in a kind of ritzy international venue, but with a strong emphasis on place and on the indigenous uh, and on regenerative ecology. Um, there's some talk that it might play a role in uh, current political situation going on in Ontario. The premier is trying to uh, take a lot of the green space <laughs> and make hmm. it available for construction. And there's movement to thwart that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The leadership review team in Toronto and the constructing consciousness team are working closely together now to set this up. So the constructing consciousness team will handle the pre-events and integral leadership review is sort of managing the main events. And it's going to be a bit of a test case for what the future of Emerge events could be. Okay. Uh, an ongoing Emerge event in North America. Um, what's the future of 
particular people or particular groups being trusted to sort of handle it on their own so that the burden can come off emerge in perspectiva. So this is sort of a test case for what we can do. Uh, many similarities to Emerge Austin, but with a few corrections and experiments that we'd like to try. And for myself, I think the, the future of the in-person events is going to be a huge part of what ends up happening in the production of a culture that we think might be able to handle the complexity of the world we face. Uh, because right now there's a lot of experiments, but if it was more predictable, if we had an understanding of the different scales and of a kind of like almost pilgrimage, like you'd be able to move through the conferences or events that you want to participate in each year and that people knew there were these spots, uh, had a little bit more reliability to it. Um, that might go a long way in is making the field more reliable, so to speak. Lovely. Yeah, well, let's, um, well, obviously, we'll stay in touch, especially as the, as the little uh, gathering around consilience gets, and we'll see if there's anything we need to be pointing to in the Emerge thing in the context of that, so that we these networking structures are, you know, feeding each other in healthy ways. Yeah, I think uh, my hope is there's going to be a lot of opportunity for people to present themselves, present their projects and show up. We don't want to emphasize that too much mm -hmm. um, because we want to do a lot of just being together and a lot of unstructured stuff because the conference format is kind of dead in some ways. Yep. Uh, but there's a lot of people doing a lot of things that nobody else is aware of, like who really understands outside of a few networks, what's Utah doing? What's Archdisciplinarity doing? People are constantly asking me what's going on with the metamodern spirituality retreats. Where is Integral at? Where is B at? What is Perspectiva up to? What are the building people doing? Right? There's Institute for Applied Meta Theory just came out. A few people know about it. Most people don't. So yep. to be a kind of um, regular event where information can be distributed and people can get a sense of what the sub-tribes are, what the projects are, that strikes me as really important. That does say it's really important. Right. Uh, and if that can be a beacon uh, of clarity and relationship to that as a source of that information, of sorting that out, of coordinating and then distributing that kind of information, and people know that that's where they go to get it, that'd be beautiful. Also, I got to say, it's uh, I've been sort of the standard bearer for Emerge Toronto for six months, and now there's like a team of people who are doing it. And I know they're a little bit like, oh, is Layman worried he's not in control of this? <laughs> but I'm like, thank God it's not on me now. <laughs> well, for the record, now. then. I've been the John the Baptist, but Jesus, we've <laughs> got this now. <laughs> All, right, that's a All right, very good. <laughs> we moved it over to where it should be. That's hysterical. <laughs> And I'm, I'm going down to see them in Toronto in a couple of weeks, but then I'm going down to see my mom in uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, right. that'll be fun. She's a fantastically still evolving, spiritual, balanced person. Her, her husband uh, lived with a Gurdjieffian group, the one that created the Bias Youth Project back in the day. Mm -hmm. He's been all over and done everything, knows everybody in the field, but uh, you know, lives remotely. It's... Uh, very intriguing guy, and I'm looking forward to hanging out with him. Lovely, lovely. Well, that should be a, a wonderful time for you and and her and him. So that sounds great. So, all right, friend. Well, I think we sort of covered the ground. It seems. Uh, any final thoughts or other topics or anything else for us to before we wrap it up here? Uh, no, I feel pretty good. I, I think there's still a a future for thinking about how these topics go together. I think in particular, one of the areas we didn't explore too much was that sort of the, the Zen Koan hybrid 
mm-hmm. uh, how discrepancy and non-discrepancy are viewed together as a kind of structural non-duality. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need to cover that today, but I think there's uh, we opened up a lot of space for discussions that, in my view, need to be had both for spirituality to clarify what it's doing operationally, Uh but also for it to make itself available to um, blend with, merge with, or hybridize with the rest of the knowledge disciplines as they continue to evolve and emerge. Well, good. We'll continue to reciprocally open space and then consolidate it and then disperse it and then open. And so so I think we're on the harmony. (laughs) Always fun to talk with you, Greg. Hey, man, really enjoyed it. Project. Hoping to see you uh, in Vermont in May and uh, in Toronto in September. Lovely, lovely. Fantastic, friend. I appreciate Cheers, it. Man. All right.